hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. A content warning. This episode includes descriptions of intense violence. In 1829, the black American writer David Walker published his book, An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. The whites have always been an unjust, jealous, unmerciful, avaricious, and bloodthirsty set of beings. Walker's appeal was one of the most radical abolitionist statements in antebellum America. He condemned the people who called themselves white for their cruel commitment to enslaving black people, and he called on enslaved people to revolt against their masters. Walker also suggested white people deserved punishment from on high. I declare, it does appear to me, as though some nations think God is asleep, or that he made the Africans for nothing else but to dig their mines and work their farms, or they cannot believe history, sacred or profane. I ask every man who has a heart and is blessed with the privilege of believing, is not God a God of justice to all his creatures? Other leading abolitionists of the 19th century, including Frederick Douglass and John Brown, voiced some version of this idea, that slavery violated God's law or natural law and white Americans would someday pay for this great sin. It took the cataclysm of the Civil War to bring a white American president to a similar view. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but... Abraham Lincoln gave his second inaugural address on March 4, 1865, as he started his new term as president. It was a little more than a month before the Confederate General Robert E. Lee would surrender at Appomattox, and only six weeks before Lincoln's assassination. In this very short speech, roughly five minutes long, Lincoln declared that all knew slavery was the cause of the war. And with more than 600,000 people dead, he implied that white America was reaping what it sowed. Fondly do we hope fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Lincoln is giving that speech at a moment when history had finally happened to white Americans. Um, it had finally hit home. Historian Ed Baptist. Uh, and we could talk about you know, him before that point, um, whether or not he was really committed to emancipation at any point um, up till 
the second inaugural. Um, I think in the second inaugural, he's not only committed to emancipation, but he's assessing it and its implications and the implications of the history of slavery and exploitation in the U.S. with an honesty that few white Americans um, have achieved since then, because there is an implicit argument for reparations in that speech. Mm. Uh, And I don't know of any other U.S. president since then who has accepted that logic. Chen Jirai. Hey, John. We've talked about Lincoln before on Scene on Radio, haven't we? Oh, yeah. I think he came up a couple times in our season two series, Seeing White. And to let folks behind the scenes a little bit, you and I have talked about this when we weren't recording, about how we would get into this episode with this Lincoln quote. And you wanted to make sure that we didn't give Abraham Lincoln too much credit for these enlightened remarks in his second inaugural speech. <laughs> right. You know, just I'm just always the <laughs> hater, right? I mean, hater. Lincoln gives a speech condemning slavery and I, I still it's not enough. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. I, it's, it is a good speech and it means something to me that Lincoln finally came to see this. Right. That white people in America had committed this tremendous crime by enslaving black people for centuries. But, you know, it's like Lincoln was racist for a lot of his life. And it took him a long time to come around, even to the point of just, you know, favoring emancipation. And I think that's what the David Walker quotes really make clear. Right. People have been saying this for decades, including people talking directly to Lincoln. So Lincoln learned and I like that he learned. But it's also a reminder to me that while white people are learning, black people are dying. Hmm. Yeah. And then when he finally comes out for emancipating enslaved people, what does he do, right? Like, why does he do that? It winds up being like a kind of a strategic thing that makes him do it. It's like a tactical war strategy. Yeah. And also his his idea was essentially we're going to free black people and then send black people out of the country to like Central America or something like that. Yeah. Colonization, as they called that kind of plan, which was fairly popular among uh, white folks for decades in the 19th century. And when Lincoln expressed that idea to some black people in about 1862, it did not go over well. (laughs) But in writing this inaugural speech just before his death, a few years later, he seems to have grasped in some real way that the United States owed black people a huge moral debt. And in mainstream political thinking in the U.S., this was a radical view up until that moment. And now the president of the United States was saying it. He had not been a radical. Right. I mean, Lincoln up to that point was the leader of a mainstream 19th century political party. And he wasn't in the most progressive wing of that party. Right. He had to be dragged into it. He was basically kind of like a Joe Biden of that time, if you want to look (laughs) at it that way. (laughs) But the Times and a whole bunch of blood had brought him to a point where he could make this statement. Here he is essentially agreeing with David Walker in declaring white Americans guilty, with the implicit message that the country needs to change for real, right? really needs to turn the page. And this is why I thought it would make sense to use Lincoln's second inaugural as a taking off point for this episode on the Reconstruction era. Even though Lincoln himself was not going to live to play any part in Reconstruction. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad we're doing an episode on Reconstruction 
because it's really a crucial time if you want to understand democracy in the U.S., even if you want to understand where we're at right now, because it was really more radical and revolutionary than most people realize. We saw this dramatic expansion of democracy, at least temporarily. And to give a taste of how radical the period was, Chenjerai, you taught for some years at a public university in South Carolina, a state which is has long been known for, shall we say, issues around race and diversity uh, up to the present day. Right. So South Carolina, like the rest of the United States, is struggling with diversity. Yeah, and my university, it was like this huge problem. People were trying to, oh, how can we solve diversity? How can we diversify the student population? You know, they bring it in experts, consultants, all kinds of things, right? Dialogues. So this is something I learned that like threw me for a loop when I learned it. There was a time when the flagship public university in South Carolina had a student body that was overwhelmingly black. And it wasn't after the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. It was in the 1870s, less than 10 years after the Civil War. When I learned that, I was like, yo, I think this really shows something that we get wrong about the progression of democracy in this country. Right. That we think it just kind of moves steadily forward and upward. Yeah, but no. Historians have called Reconstruction the second revolution or the second founding. Yeah, and I think that's appropriate because the people who were wielding power in the mid-1860s, some of them black, some of them white, really pushed the United States into new territories of democracy, far beyond what the original founders did. I mean, at least they tried to. This is season four of Seen on Radio, episode four of our series, The Land That Never Has Been Yet. I'm John Bewin, producer and host of the show. That was Chenjerai Kumanyika, professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers, activist, artist, podcaster. He and I will talk more later after the episode. This time out, Reconstruction. Some say this period is more important for American democracy than the nation's founding. So why did the whole country, or anyway the powerful people, South and North, why did they decide that the second revolution shouldn't be allowed to last? What's your name? Victoria Smalls. Where exactly did you grow up? Right here on St. Helena Island. This is my home. And I'm proud to be um, a Gullah Geechee girl. We're in Beaufort on the South Carolina coast, standing on a lawn under huge live oaks and Spanish moss at the historic Penn Center, where Victoria Smalls is director of history, art, and culture. Penn Center was one of the first schools for freed black people during and after the Civil War. At the moment, we're talking about Victoria's people, the Gullah Geechee, an enclave of black people who worked on plantations along the southern Atlantic coast both during slavery and as free people. They mostly grew rice, as their ancestors had done in West and Central Africa, and their isolation on the coastal islands helped them preserve their African traditions. Our foodways, our oral histories, our uh, folklore. And yes, this is audio. We've got to do the language thing. Yeah, so when I was growing up, it meant that you talked funny. And I had a very deep Gullah accent. 
um, which you cannot pick up on now. It's really sad because you don't know where Can I'm you from. I glad if I see on the day. Hope to see on a soon. Hope to see on a soon. Hope to see you soon. Yeah. Yeah. Victoria has traced her family back to 1780 in this part of South Carolina. I know their names, and they all are coming from this island. One set of smalls is coming from this island. I, my second great-grandmother was a runaway from Charleston. Her last name was Smalls as a teenager. And I'm guessing, I'm only guessing that it was around 1861, 1862, when refugees started coming this way because of Union forces occupying the area. Even though South Carolina was deep in the Confederacy, the land we're now standing on was occupied by the Union as early as November 1861, just months after the war started at Fort Sumter. The Union Navy seized the nearby harbor, Port Royal, because of its strategic importance. So during the war, this part of coastal South Carolina became a gathering place for recently enslaved people. Some escaped from their plantations and managed to make it here. Others found themselves free when their slaveholders fled Union forces. After the Confederacy's surrender in 1865, South Carolina, along with other places in the South, became a laboratory for a new American democracy. We were looking through our family records. Victoria tells me about another document she found, this one in the records of the Freedmen's Bureau. That was the big federal agency that Congress created at the end of the Civil War to protect freed people and help them start new lives. The document is a bank application. My second great-grandparents, Adam and Betsy Smalls, was opening a bank account with the Freedmen's Bank in downtown Beaufort on Bay Street. And 1869, actually February 9, 1869, opened an account. And on this application, it had his name, where he was born, where he was raised, where he is living. His occupation was a farmer. And, and the other thing says works for, which really struck me. And it said himself on his own land. And that really, it's hot out here and I'm sweating outside, but I just got these goosebumps all over me just out of amazement that in 1869 he had his own land. The Smalls' land did not come from Special Field Order 15, better known as the 40 acres and a mule policy ordered by General William Tecumseh Sherman in early 1865. By the way, the order promised land but no mules. President Andrew Johnson rescinded Sherman's order after Lincoln's assassination. The government took back most of the land that had been confiscated and given to free black families and returned it to its previous white owners. Do you know of any, and you can help me with this too, was the... Also with us at the Penn Center is Brent Morris, a historian at the University of South Carolina, Beaufort, who's showing me around. He says Victoria Smalls' ancestors, Adam and Betsy Smalls, got their land in a different way. When the Union Army occupied the Beaufort area, hundreds of slaveholding planters skedaddled and then lost title to their lands because they couldn't return to make their tax payments without risking arrest. In Beaufort, um, in the Lowcountry, there were about 200 different plantations that were sold. 
and um, most of them were bought up by Northerners. But a big chunk of that land was bought up by African Americans, and that's sort of the, the seed that Victoria was talking about, this, this family land that was so important. And land was, was really what mattered in Reconstruction. Getting the vote was great, but land and education, I think, were sort of hand in hand. Education had allowed people to, um, in the past, to, to rise up through society. If you could read and write, then you could become a powerful person. But also land. The people that were the most powerful and rich in the Old South had been the big landowners. And just their example, they were literate and they had land. It was something that the freedmen could aspire to, and they did. Land, education, the right to vote and hold public office. For a time, it looked like these things would now become available to four million black people across the American South who were freshly freed from chattel slavery. This made the years after 1865 an extraordinary time. Hopes were high, but these gains were hard won and always under threat. After the defeat of the Confederacy, Lincoln's party, the Republicans, held firm control of Congress. The election of 1866 gave them a majority so big they could override vetoes by President Andrew Johnson. He was a Democrat from Tennessee and an unabashed white supremacist. He wanted the North to make up with the defeated South and move on. For a time, though, the Congress led a push to dramatically remake the country. Reconstruction is fundamentally a story about democracy. It's about who will have a role in American democracy going forward from the Civil War. Historian Eric Foner. He's widely considered the leading authority on Reconstruction. Will this be a biracial democracy where African Americans for the first time really are given a voice in who rules in their society, in their, in their states? Or will they be put back into a position of subordination? Not slaves anymore, but certainly not uh, equal in any way. The Civil War didn't settle that fight. It made it possible to have it. At first, the Republican-controlled Congress tried to create a multiracial democracy. It passed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, abolishing slavery in 1865. Then over the next few years, two more amendments. The 14th granted citizenship to anyone born in the U.S. and guaranteed equal treatment under the law, regardless of race. The 15th declared voting rights could not be denied because of race. Eric Foner's newest book about the passage of those three amendments is titled The Second Founding. I use second founding because we talk about the founders, you know, from the American Revolutionary era. Well, my argument is this really remade the Constitution. It wasn't just a series of little changes. It created a fundamentally new uh, document. Uh, and if we want to you know, as we should uh, admire James Madison and Hamilton and the original founders, we should also equally admire John Bingham and Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner and those who rewrote the Constitution in order to try to bring this principle of equality into it. Those members of Congress were among the leaders of the radical Republicans, as they were called. Members of the party who, unlike Lincoln, were clear abolitionists before the Civil War. Their leader in the Senate was Charles Sumner, a Bostonian in his 50s and the Congress's most uncompromising defender of equal rights for black people. 
A decade before, in 1856, a South Carolina congressman had brutally beaten Sumner with a cane on the Senate floor during a bitter debate about whether to admit Kansas as a free or slave state. Now Sumner and his allies were in charge, and they pushed for what W.E.B. Du Bois would later call abolition democracy. Over two days in February 1866, Sumner gave a four-hour speech with Frederick Douglass seated in the crowded Senate gallery. Sumner was explicit in saying the country needed to go far beyond the first revolution. Our fathers solemnly announced the equal rights of all men and that government had no just foundation except in the consent of the governed. Looking at this declaration now, it is chiefly memorable for the promises it made. Mighty words, fit lesson for mankind. And now the moment has come when these vows must be fulfilled to the letter. In securing the equal rights of the freedman and his participation in the government which he is taxed to support, we shall perform the early promise of the fathers. And Sumner said the nation also had to repay black people for their role in helping to win the Civil War. As the condition of alliance and aid against the rebellion. Failure here is moral and political bankruptcy. With the radical Republicans temporarily in control, Congress put the former Confederate states under martial law in 1867. It required those states to hold constitutional conventions, with black people fairly represented and many former Confederate leaders banned from participation. Those new constitutions adopted the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery and granted voting rights to black men. The Congress also created the Freedmen's Bureau, which built thousands of schools and hospitals and helped freed people negotiate fair labor contracts. I mean, it's absolutely revolutionary. Historian Kadada Williams of Wayne State University. She talks about the roughly 2,000 black men elected to office during Reconstruction at the local, state, and federal levels, most strikingly in places like South Carolina, where black people were the majority in the 1860s. What you see for African Americans in South Carolina is when they are elected to state office, one of the biggest things they do is to make a move toward expanding democracy in their state. More people have access to government. More people have better representation by government. Government in places like South Carolina are do, is doing more. It's doing things that today we take for granted. And African Americans are behind this push. Would like to see the uh, upstairs gallery? Is that possible? Bobby Donaldson and I walk into the South Carolina State House, the domed Capitol building in Columbia. He's a professor of history here at the University of South Carolina. The state's constitutional convention in 1868, ordered and overseen by the federal government, produced a new state blueprint that gave all men the right to vote, regardless of race or property. The result, South Carolina's House of Representatives, seated in July 1868, looked like the state 
it was majority black, 88 black members to 67 whites. And across is the Senate. Donaldson has led me to the House chamber. You can think about between 1868 and 77, um, this space being occupied by African Americans, a cross-section really. You had people who were natives of South Carolina who were holding elective office, and then you had some people who were transplants or carpetbaggers or people who came here, some because of the Civil War and Union forces, some who came because of opportunities. And here is where they govern, and here is where they help to recreate the state of South Carolina. The new state constitution mandated free public education for everyone for the first time, including poor white people who had had no access to schooling. And it required that every public institution be open to everyone. The University of South Carolina was integrated. Most white students left when black students were admitted in 1873, so for the next four years, the student body was 90% black. These dramatic changes were made by a majority black legislature in South Carolina of all places. And those decisions were made in this building, the State House, that was a virtual shrine to white supremacy at the time, and in some ways still is. Remember, the Confederate battle flag flew on the State House grounds until it was finally removed in 2015. And inside the State House? Um, there, for example, there's a, there's a statue of um, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun, one of the nation's leading pro-slavery politicians during the first half of the 19th century, and a vice president under Andrew Jackson. Calhoun called slavery a positive good, and he wrote this. There never has yet existed a wealthy and civilized society in which one portion of the community did not, in point of fact, live on the labor of the other. So, Bobby Donaldson says, think of those African-American lawmakers coming to work here in the 1860s and 70s. These people are governing in a space where they know there is, you know, there is, there is this very clear assumption that this will be a failure. And if these people don't sort of fail on their own, we'll engineer it so that there's a failure. The we who would engineer that failure was the state's white power structure. The white Southern backlash started right after the war and never let up. In 1865 and 66, most of the Southern state legislatures passed black codes. They banned black people from voting, denied them equal rights, and made them subject to vagrancy laws so they could be arrested practically at will. That was a major reason Congress saw the need to impose martial law and replace those white supremacist legislatures with Reconstruction governments. Military police suppressed the backlash somewhat, but never really stopped the violence by the newly founded Ku Klux Klan and similar groups, including direct political violence. So Benjamin Franklin Randolph uh, comes to South Carolina uh, as a chaplain for the Union Army. And he is elected a senator uh, during the Reconstruction period. He is uh, a very engaged and clear architect of the 1868 Constitution. Benjamin Franklin Randolph was a free black man, a graduate of Oberlin, who'd been a school principal in Buffalo, New York. 
When he volunteered to serve the Union Army, he was assigned as chaplain to a black infantry unit that deployed to South Carolina in 1864. When the war ended, Randolph decided to stay, and he became a leader of reconstruction efforts in the state. It is he who helps to push forward the, the policies about education, and it is he who is killed while traveling and campaigning uh, in a place near Abbeville, South Carolina. Bobby and I go to Randolph Cemetery. It's tucked along a frontage road next to the interstate in Columbia. It's named for Benjamin Franklin Randolph, and his tall obelisk is the largest marker in the cemetery. In October 1868, Randolph was traveling as a state senator and Republican Party leader, campaigning for other candidates, when he changed trains at Hodges Station, 70 miles west of the capital. As he was on the rear of a train, and I'm not sure if he was just greeting people, actually speaking, is where he's shot um, and targeted by an assassin. Now, one of the important points about that incident is that that was not the only assassination in that window of time. Uh, it was not uncommon. And many people knew that they were jeopardizing their lives. He had come under threat before. And so he understood that the dangers involved in that role uh, in, the 18, in 1868. In the first election in 1868, where African-Americans have access to the right to vote, African-American men have access to the right to vote, you see the beginnings of violence designed to stop them from voting um, and to stop them from serving in office. And that only increases in 1869, headed into the 1870 election. Historian Kadata Williams is author of the book, They Left Great Marks on Me, which looked at African-American accounts of racial violence in the decades after emancipation. And for the 1870 election, you see shocking levels of violence. And part of what has happened is that you've got the emergence of these sort of white terror groups conducting paramilitary campaigns. And they are targeting voters, they are tar targeting elected officials, and their families. The Klan, the Knights of the White Camellia, the Red Shirts, in dozens of incidents across the South, white gangs show up to attack or intimidate black politicians and voters to keep them from the polls. But that's just the violence tied directly to electoral politics. There's a broader terror campaign aimed at reversing the Second American Revolution. There are ways in which black people were actually more vulnerable than they had been under slavery because they're no longer valuable property, right? Exactly. What you don't see under slavery is masters killing their slaves all willy-nilly. With emancipation, that changes. Williams has researched the many thousands of individual attacks against black people during Reconstruction by paramilitary groups, police, and just regular white citizens. African Americans called these attacks, or these attackers, night riders. They wage war against black people's freedom. And this isn't hyperbole. What they do is these heavily armed squads of white men surveil and stalk their African-American targets. They wait to catch them off guard when they're with their wives, when they're with their kids, when they're in bed, and therefore unsuspecting and more vulnerable. They invade African-Americans' homes in the dark of night, 
They hold families hostage for hours at a time, where they rape, torture, mutilate, and murder them. No member of a household that was attacked was spared the violence that occurred. There's no way to get an accurate count of these murders. But Kadata points to an estimate made in 1895 by the black statesman Robert Smalls of South Carolina. He said 53,000 black people were murdered in the South in the three decades after the Civil War. For a while, the U.S. government tried to counter this terror campaign. Ulysses Grant, the former Union general, was elected president in 1868 and served two terms. He was a Republican supporter of Reconstruction. He sent troops to several states to suppress Klan violence and protect black voters at the polls. But it wasn't enough, and the federal government's commitment didn't last. In 1873, the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana, an armed white mob killed up to 150 black people after a disputed election for governor. And in South Carolina, white men killed dozens of black people in several towns during the 1876 election campaign. That election, 1876, would be the last under full-fledged Reconstruction. Looking back, maybe what's remarkable is that Reconstruction happened at all, and that it lasted as long as it did. Here's Eric Foner again. The abolition of slavery comes about through an unusual alliance, you might say, between the most downtrodden people in the country, the slaves themselves, some of their allies in the North, which Du Bois calls the abolition democracy, the radical Republicans, and then Northern capital, the richest people in the country, who are also committed to the Republican Party, who do not want the country broken up. They, they weren't interested in civil war, but when the war broke out, they were absolutely adamant that uh, the, the North had to win. And they came to be convinced, as Lincoln did, that the only way to win this war was to attack slavery. And for a few years, Northern elites wanted to make sure Southern oligarchs didn't just re-enslave black people and go back to the status quo before the war. That would have made the bloody conflict pointless and would have returned the country to the perpetual economic and political power struggle between North and South. But by the mid-1870s, it was clear chattel slavery was over and the Southern oligarchy had been stripped of much of its wealth and power. Foner says the rich men of the North and their congressional representatives had gotten what they wanted most. They gave up on their alliance with the radical Republicans and the newly freed black people in the South. By the 1870s, you get a serious economic depression, which begins in 1873 and lasts to 1878. Uh, you get many Northerners, particularly these capitalists maybe, uh, saying, okay, we've done enough now. The, you know, we've got to move on to other issues. The capital and labor, the relations between them and the North is now on the agenda. Blacks have gotten their rights. They're in the Constitution. They're voting. Let's move on to other questions. And so the, the coalition fragments, and the Republican Party becomes more and more the party of northern industrialists. And eventually, northern capitalists kind of come to, you know, we can do business with these southern, the southern elite, merchants, planters. In a way, they're like us, you know. In 1876, the presidential election is contested 
and leaders of the two parties cut a backroom deal. The Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, gets the presidency, and in return for the Democrats ending their challenge to Hayes, he agrees to pull the last federal troops out of the South. That same year, in South Carolina, the elections for governor and the state legislature are also contested. When the federal government withdraws its troops and refuses to help settle the state's election dispute, Republicans in Columbia know it's over. The Republican governor resigns and the white supremacist Democrats take control of the state in the spring of 1877. Historian Bobby Donaldson. South Carolina's experiment was only made possible because you had a military force here providing protection and assistance to African Americans. And it is no irony then that when those military forces are are withdrawn in April of 1877 is where you see many people seeing the closing window, the drop of the curtain of Reconstruction. By the 1890s, the former Confederate states are rewriting their constitutions again, using tools like poll taxes and unfair literacy tests to disenfranchise black voters. The Supreme Court, for decades, consistently interprets the new constitutional amendments in ways that strip them of their intended purpose, to defend the voting rights and other civil rights of black people. By 1900, Jim Crow is in full force. So that's a photograph of a woman named Mary McLeod Bethune, who was born during Reconstruction. As we're walking through the South Carolina State House, Bobby Donaldson reminds me of something. So you know, this, this building um, is kind of a site of the uh, birth of a nation. That flagrantly racist 1915 movie was set in South Carolina. It supposedly tells the story of Reconstruction and its righteous defeat by white supremacists the reactionary movement known as Redemption. The silent film slanders black Reconstruction lawmakers. In one scene, a black state representative puts his bare feet on his desk during a House debate, while another eats fried chicken. This was the lie Americans were told far into the 20th century, that Reconstruction failed because black people were not ready or able to handle political power responsibly. Only in recent decades have historians created a new consensus that sets the record straight. The great black scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, writing his epic book Black Reconstruction in the 1930s, summed up the story of Reconstruction this way. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again toward slavery. Democracy died, save in the hearts of black folk. I think that adequately describes part of what happened. But I think it's also important to recognize that for African-Americans, something significant still had changed. They didn't just sort of throw up their hands and say, okay. They recognized the difference between their enslavement and limited freedom after redemption. And very few of them would choose to go back to slavery. And I think that tells us a lot about slavery, and it tells us a lot about what they accomplished and what they still uh, hope to accomplish, even in light of what happened with redemption.
Hey, John Jirai. Hey, John. I mean, I figured I, I couldn't wait to call you, man. So <laughs> what do you think? You know, what I keep noticing is uh, the more details I learn about U.S. history, the more painful the reality is, right? Mm. It's sort of become a recurring theme in my mind, almost a slogan. It's always worse than you thought. Yeah, man. When I first started digging into this several years ago, it was deep for me too, right? I mean, first of all, Reconstruction is so important, but so neglected. And then the backlash was like so heavy that I kind of was like, what's the what's the inspiring takeaway, you know, just in terms of trying to go forward, right? When I was learning about this from from certain older scholars and just black people who knew some of this history, it kind of felt like the moral of the story was, well, we had this glimpse of real democracy, but white folks always mess things up. You know, like that's the moral. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, yeah. like hip hop, dreadlocks, <laughs> black neighborhoods, and reconstruction. That's the point. White folks mess it up, right? Um, uh, well. And, yeah, I mean, but the thing is, yeah, I mean, when you really confront how viciously white supremacy attacked real emerging democracy after the Civil War. Yeah, and I think it's really important uh, for us white folks to understand this in some basic way, to, to understand this history. For one thing, because there's still this lingering racist idea out there in the culture, you know, and, and white folks who grew up in the South maybe kind of imbibed it with their mother's milk, but it goes way beyond the South. This idea that Reconstruction failed because it was a misguided project, imposed by northern do-gooders and carpetbaggers, and black folks just weren't ready to govern, blah, 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 right, that story. So we just really need to be clear about the real story. And I think we also need to take in the reality of this history so we can get over more broadly the glossy, really propagandistic version of American history that most of us have been fed. A friend of mine who's a southern historian, white guy, he likes to say, we need to be clear about who we were so we can see more clearly who we are. And right, and it's not like I knew better growing up, right? What I had was just no real story or reflection on Reconstruction at all. Like it didn't happen. Yeah. So I really didn't realize how enduring that particular narrative has been. It's like it just doesn't go away. Yeah, and, and I'm the same way. I, you know, Reconstruction was just not a thing for me until far, far into my adulthood. Um, but that narrative was the dominant one also among professional historians for many decades. Um, it was called the Dunning School, named after a professor, history professor at Columbia, by the way, in New York, not at the University of Alabama or someplace. Historians all over the country uh, held to this consensus of the, uh, you know, the sort of almost the birth of a nation story of Reconstruction until people like Eric Foner and others really picking up on the work of W.E.B. Du Bois uh, corrected the record just really in the last few decades. So you have like a sort of, you know, bullshit narrative of the Civil War and the Lost Cause and mm. then kind of as part of that, 
you have this Dunning School thing. And I had, and I had re- heard and read folks like Du Bois and Foner talk about the Dunning School and really lay waste to that version of Reconstruction. But I didn't realize that like outside of the academy, that it kind of that idea had sort of settled in to culture as common sense about Reconstruction. Yeah. So it's partially for that reason that among the many lessons from Reconstruction, there are two that I think are really important. Okay. Um, The first one is sometimes history creates conditions for people to push radical ideas of justice forward, right? Mm. I mean, like enslaved people and abolitionists really pushed the Civil War toward emancipation. It wasn't about that when when it started, right? And the end of the Civil War is actually the beginning of this whole new phase of the radical project. Reconstruction was this opportunity that got created for folks to govern really differently. So black people, including some of former slaves, get elected to legislatures. Things start to change in major ways. I mean, really, when you look at it, the real founding document of the United States, the Constitution, gets fundamentally altered. It does. And those were huge achievements, getting those Reconstruction Amendments written into the Constitution. Briefly, some black folks getting land, some universities get integrated. I mean, there were glimpses of what could be. And it took a coalition of folks with different positions in society to do that, right? That unlikely alliance that Foner discussed. But then there's the backlash. Yeah. So I think the second big lesson that I'm thinking about based on this episode is something that is might feel a little bit abstract, but it's it's what does government really do? You know, we talk a lot about who's in government, you know, or just what specific laws are. But I think that what I'm what I think this episode makes us think about is how people at the top of the social order even understand the purpose of government to begin with. Mm. Okay, which is uh, bringing some echoes of earlier episodes in this series. So ostensibly, we've got this government of, by, and for the people. But what we keep seeing, it seems, is that the U.S. government's primary function on the ground turns out to be, more often than not, something else. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just to say it, right? I mean, wealthy white folks and... A lot of poor white folks who didn't like the changes that were happening with Reconstruction, I mean, they saw the government really as something that existed to enrich and protect them. Hmm. And when it stopped functioning that way for this brief period of time, they did whatever they had to do to bring it back to what they thought it was supposed to do. Yeah, and then there's almost a kind of uh, broader conspiracy to do that because you have the U.S. Supreme Court and the states managing to find ways to squash the effectiveness of the 14th and 15th amendments right for a long time they just went back to disenfranchising and disempowering black people far into the middle of the 20th century right i mean already even with the 13th amendment you saw that there was this loophole in there from the start yeah abolished slavery except for the punishment of a crime right So that exception allows people who ran things in the South to go essentially to continue enslaving folks, right? You can arrest them for something using like a bullshit law like vagrancy, which could be walking down the street, minding your business, not having a job, not having a place to live. You get arrested. Then you get rented out to a um, plantation owner to work for nothing in chains and they break up your family, right? And all of that just continued 
the practice of using black people as a source of free labor and profit. And you can draw lines from that all the way to this day with mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex as people like Michelle Alexander and Ava DuVernay have done so powerfully. Yes. And, you know, and then you have new forms of oppression arising in each subsequent era in addition to that. Right. But again, thinking about the purpose of government, the reason why all of that is allowed to stand after Reconstruction is that Reconstruction was like this radical experiment in political democracy. But then the economic priorities were still running the show. Mm. I mean, it's still economic priorities that drive the reunion between the North and South, right? So you have the Civil War, right? And it's kind of like, okay, well, we had this spat. (laughs) 600,000 people lost their lives. But now it's time to get back to business, right? Reconciliation for white folks, lynching, and Jim Crow for black folks. Yeah. And we we haven't really dealt with it, man. It's it's, it's like, you know, it's funny. I once heard Reverend William Barber talking about forgiveness and grace after the the uh, tragic murders in Charleston at the AME Church. Yeah. Because as soon as something like that happens, there's microphones in front of black people's faces asking us if we forgive. Right. Yeah. And he basically said, yeah, you know, forgiveness is important. Right. This whole idea of grace. And he said. But before you have grace, you have to have acknowledgement. He also said, incidentally, that forgiveness should be about not allowing the evils of a system to be displaced onto one particular killer either. You know, that was that was another thing. So that in that way, forgiveness could be profound because it could be about, you know, moving the indictment on back onto the system while Mm. still, you know, we got to hold the person accountable, of course. Right. But, you know, this idea of grace, right? Before you have grace, you have to have acknowledgement. Yeah, and we are so far from any kind of adequate acknowledgement as a culture and as a country. And, you know, white folks writ large. Um, and that really brings us back to where we started with David Walker and Lincoln and their words about moral debt and at least a strongly implied need for reparations. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, when we talk about reparations, sometimes people act like the conversation started with H.R. 40 or with Ta-Nehisi Coates. But, you know, people were talking about that at that time, right? Like way back then, it's, you know, these ideas of redistribution and repair. They were, uh, and this was new to me quite recently, There was a major proposal by a few of the radical Republicans uh, in the 1860s during the height of their power, which would have shifted not just political power, but also economic power. Remember, at the end of the Civil War, Sherman's order, which would have taken a slice of land seized from slaveholders along the Atlantic coast uh, and granted that land to some freed people, 40 acres per family, and that order was rescinded, right? Well, a couple years later, in 1867, Thaddeus Stevens, the leader of the Radical Republicans in the House of Representatives, he proposed a much more massive program to do essentially the same thing. He wanted to confiscate all the land owned by slaveholders all across the South and give that land to the four million freed black people in 40-acre allotments. Can you imagine 
if that had happened. Woo. I mean, what it would have required to do that would have would have been actually transformative. And that's what black people were saying at the time very clearly. Right. They said it to Sherman and they were saying it to the radical Republicans. We need land to make a decent life, to support ourselves, to be independent. And on top of that, our labor has built the economy of the South and actually the whole country. So don't let's not talk about fairness. Right. We've more than earned that. And if we want to proceed on any kind of ethical grounds, then we have to use our imagination to make this happen. And Stevens agreed and he wanted to do it. But the proposal really didn't get much widespread support even in his party, the Republican Party, let alone from the Southern Democrats or people like the President Andrew Johnson. And the proposal died. In fact, here, let's play a clip from my interview with Eric Foner, the Reconstruction historian. Here's what he said about that. Even as radical as Reconstruction was, the idea of confiscating the property of one class of people and distributing it to another was more than most Northern Republicans were willing to do. They believed in the sanctity of private property. What one might say about Reconstruction in this regard is that um, the political revolution was radical, really radical. The economic revolution did not go nearly as far. Yeah, and listen to that language, right? I mean, they believed in the sanctity of private property. That's the language of power. Private property is what reigns supreme, no matter what kind of crimes against humanity, what kind of violence and exploitation went into acquiring that property, right? It just seems like a very consistent theme in the history of America. Hmm. It seems like what we're learning is that if economic power is distributed in a profoundly unequal way, which has been true throughout most of U.S. history, then government will not serve the interests of everybody equally or even close to equally. Unless, maybe, unless there's some urgent need uh, in a given moment to protect the, the interests and the rights of poor and working people, say in a major crisis of some kind. For example, I don't know, a Great Depression, something like that. I'm glad you brought up the Great Depression, right? Because looking at how people organized for economic democracy before and through the Great Depression is really important because it's always been the job of people who are fighting for justice to create that kind of urgency. Next time, guess what? The New Deal. It was a big deal. But just how big and how new was it? Our editor on the series is Loretta Williams. Music consulting and production help by Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. Our theme song is The Underside of Power by Algiers. Other music by John Eric Cotta, Eric Niveau, and Lucas Bewin. Voiceovers this time by Michael Betts II and Scott Hewler. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, at Scene on Radio. Chenjerai is at Catch a Tweet Down. Thanks to North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Seen on Radio is distributed by PRX. The show comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.
from PRX.